invite you to remain standing out of devotion to God as He saves saints and sanctifies His people through the preaching and reading of His Word. And turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 2 is where we are going to be this morning. If you don't happen to have a Bible, we would invite you to grab one of the Bibles located in a chair back in front of you and turn to page 858. At the beginning of December... We began a series of expositions through Luke's Gospel, and today we come to the end of chapter 2 as we want to look at verses 41 through 52 together. So let me read our text for us, and then pray that God would bless our study of His Word, and then we will dive in. So let us hear now as God speaks to us through His Word. Now Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast had ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey ahead. And when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And Jesus said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he had spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all of these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? The flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray together once again. Father, we do praise you that you speak to us through your word, that your word is life unto us. And so, Lord, as we come, we pray that you would feed us, that you would make us hungry, that your spirit would open our eyes and our hearts to respond in faith and repentance. Lord, strengthen me to preach as I ought, with clarity, with boldness, as a dying man unto dying people. Lord, we pray that you would do all of these things for your glory and our good. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, Several years ago, a friend of mine challenged me to read one presidential biography for every president in our United States history. And it's a challenge that I took up at the time, but I'm now convinced that I'm never going to complete because there are certain presidents in our country's history that do little to excite my interest. Men like Benjamin Harrison or Chester Arthur. But along the way, I have read quite a few uh, biographies of our presidents and I've noticed something common in all of these long studies of these leaders of old. And it's that their childhood is often very quickly moved past. And that's for various reasons, I'm sure. Maybe there's a lack of material on the given president's childhood to make much about it. But it sure seems like ordinarily, 
It's because the given president's childhood was, in fact, so ordinary. There was nothing terribly striking or terribly notable in his upbringing. Every once in a while, you'll come across a president who has a unique event or two in his adolescence and his childhood that does pique the reader's interest. But on the whole, it was a leader who grew up in a very normal home, very normal lifestyle. And when we come to Luke's gospel, you may have not thought about it this way before, we come to what is a divine autobiography, a divine biography of Jesus Christ. And what we get in the four gospels of Jesus, these four biographies of Jesus in the Bible, is virtually nothing about his adolescence, nothing about his childhood, almost telling us it's so ordinary that it doesn't even merit much of a mention. In fact, our text this morning is the only story in all of the Bible about Jesus between his birth and his public ministry at the age of 30. And so when you hear that, you should ask the question. So students, this is a question you always want to ask when you come across a text like this. Why is it here? Why is this the only event of Jesus' childhood that the Spirit believes is worth us knowing about? And kids, maybe that's even a good question to consider as we study this text together. Maybe it's even a good one you can talk about with your parents over lunch. Why this story as the only one mentioned in Jesus' childhood? And surely there are a few things that we could offer by way of an answer to that question. And hopefully even by the end of our time this morning, we'll have a few different answers we can provide. But if you want to think about it just in a summary fashion, in a summary statement, the main theme of this text in so many ways is Jesus' early identity as God's obedient son. Luke wants us to know that from his earliest years, Jesus was the obedient son of God, and as we're going to see, he knew he was the son of God. And by the end of our time, I hope we'll see why those things are, are so important. So it's a simple text, it's a short text, but it is quite significant for our understanding of the glory and work of Jesus Christ. So I want to walk through our verses under two simple headings. Number one is a lost son, verses 41 through 45. And then verses 46 through 52, a found Savior. A son's going to be lost, and then we're going to find the Savior, I hope, in our text this morning as we study it together. If you weren't with us last week, Mark Evans preached through verses 21 through 42 in Luke chapter 2. And what we saw Jesus last doing was he was brought to the temple by his parents, eight days of age, to be circumcised. So they brought him to the temple out of obedience to God's law. Then the narrative goes silent, and then it resumes here at the end of chapter 2, 12 years later, as Jesus' parents once again are bringing him to the temple out of obedience to God's law. First, we want to notice a lost son. Look again at verse 41 as Luke picks up the story. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. The Old Testament law said there were three different times that a man, a Jewish, a devout Jewish man, had to go up to Jerusalem for Passover Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles. It wasn't required that women and children go with him, but clearly from our text, they often did. 
And even by Jesus' time, really only the Feast of Passover was observed with devotion. So what you would have for this week-long period of time, sometime in March and April in our calendar, you'd have 200,000 people, maybe upwards of 250,000 people, descending on Jerusalem. They'd bring with them animals for the sacrifice. And so you'd have over 100,000 sheep crowding into the city for the sacrifices that were observed that week. So it was a chaotic time in the life of a Jewish family. And Jesus even goes up at 12 years old. And it's a significant point if you understand that at the age of 13 in Jewish culture, that's when a boy became a man. He became, as you may have heard of it before, he became bar mitzvah, which just means son of the commandment or son of the covenant. At the age of 13, he was fully held accountable for the law. When he broke the law, he was treated as an adult. And so parents, in preparation for their son's bar mitzvah, would often train their children, of course, in God's word. But close to the age of 13, they would start bringing their sons up to Jerusalem for the religious festivals that he might become accustomed to and acclimated with these religious services that would so begin to define his religious life. And so you'll notice that Luke makes a point in verse 42 to say it was according to custom. It's Luke's way of telling us that we need to remember once again that Joseph and Mary were devout and godly parents. They observe God's law. They keep it and bring Jesus, their firstborn, into observance of the law itself, which is very important for us to know what kind of home Jesus grew up in, one that honored the law, that observed God's word. And I wonder if it might even be a challenge to some of you in here this morning that are parents, maybe a challenge or conviction to examine yourself on how you are leading your family to observe God's will and God's word. Do you, like Mary and Joseph, have a visible commitment to the public worship of God, the public ordinances of, of Jesus Christ? So at the end of the week, we find out, notice verse 43, that when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. And his parents didn't know it. And they supposed that he was within the group, and so they go ahead a day's journey, is what Luke says. Now to give you an idea of how long that would be, that was about 20 to 25 miles at this time in Jewish custom. So it would be akin to if after the service today, you decided to set out on foot from this church building and walk all the way to the Galleria on the tollway in 635. And by the time you get there, you gather together once again with your caravan and you discover that your firstborn child hasn't been with you the whole way. And you can imagine, can't you, the anxiety that Mary and Joseph must have felt in this moment? It was common for people as they traveled to Jerusalem and from Jerusalem for these kind of religious festivals to do so in a caravan to increase their safety. Normally the women would be at the front of the caravan with the children. The men would be at the back together. And so Jesus, I'm sorry, Joseph probably just assumed that Jesus was with Mary. Mary probably assumed that Jesus was with Joseph. And once the caravan comes together, they look and see that he's not anywhere to be found. And you'll see even in Verse 44, that they're frantically looking for him among their friends and their relatives, and he's nowhere to be found. So look what happens in verse 45. They didn't find him, of course, and so they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. 
And so the narrative moves from this lost son to really focus on Jesus being found and the truths about his messianic identity when he himself is found. So notice how Luke continues in verse 46 as we want to see now the found Savior. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. So these teachers who were experts in the Old Testament Jewish law would often hold court at the temple terrace with their disciples. They would sit down and they would ask their disciples questions, often interpretations about ethical matters or theological matters in the Old Testament. It was education by disputation. They would ask their students questions and assume that they would give a careful and knowledgeable response in return. And what happens in our text is Jesus reverses the situation. He is the one holding court, you'll notice, with the teachers. He's the one that is amazing them with his knowledge and his understanding because you'll see what verse 47 says, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, if you look back at verse 40 of Luke chapter 2 and then glance even ahead at verse 52 of Luke chapter 2, you'll see that twice Luke emphasizes Jesus' growth in wisdom. And here we find out that Jesus has amazed the teachers with his understanding. And if you were an early first century Jew reading this story of Jesus Christ, and you were aware of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah to come, you can't help but hear about this individual amazing people with his wisdom and understanding. And not recall this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11 of this root that would come from Jesse. And one of the markers of the Messiah was that a spirit of wisdom and understanding would rest upon him, which is exactly what happens here with Jesus. If you ever came to a stone, a family gathering, the extended family getting all together over a holiday, I'm sure you would notice several different peculiarities of our family uh, one of which would be that we tend to pass most of that time just sharing stories, telling stories of the glory days gone by. And there are a few different stories that no matter which holiday comes by, we tend to always talk about for one reason or another. Uh, my mother has a, a favorite story that she loves to retell about the time that I disappeared when my maternal grandmother was in town and was watching my twin sister and I. I'm too young to really remember uh, the story, but as I've heard the story many times, it goes something like this. My, my mother went out in the afternoon for errands, and my grandma Koonsman was watching us, and, and sometime not long after, I disappeared. And grandma Koonsman, understandably, was anxious and frantic that she has lost her grandson. And of course, this is before cell phones made communication immediate and easy, so she's frantically searching for me, beginning to lose her mind in anxiety. And soon my mom comes home, and she hears the story, and my mom, in her everlasting perception, says, no, Jordan has not left the house. I'm sure he's playing hide-and-seek. And sure enough, I was playing a game of hide-and-seek that only I knew about. And so eventually my mom decided, after she kind of rummaged around in the normal hiding spots, that there was nothing that was going to get me to come out other than a threat of punishment. 
So my mom supposedly lifted up her voice with great power and uttered a, a forceful threat of punishment that caused me to come cowering out of the garage lest I face my mother's wrath and judgment. And what you'll see now in verse 40, 48 is what Mary says when she discovers her son who has disappeared. And her words are not ones of judgment, but Mary's words are ones of astonishment. Notice what happens in verse 48. And when his parents saw Jesus, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. You see, Mary just jumps right in to a reproach. She's accusing Jesus of wrongdoing, particularly wrong that he has done to them. We've been searching for you. How could you do this to us? If you kind of follow the sequence of events, for an entire day they journeyed away from Jerusalem. An entire day's journey they came back to Jerusalem. And on the third day, three days after realizing their son is gone, they finally find him and Mary is beside herself at Jesus' apparent carelessness towards his parents' feelings and emotions. So what is Jesus going to say? The sinless Savior, this 12-year-old boy, what is he going to say in response to his mother's reproach? Well, he gives his own kind of gentle rebuke. Notice now in verse 49 what one commentator calls the nuclear climax of this scene. And Jesus said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Up until this point in Luke's gospel, people other than Jesus have interpreted the events surrounding Jesus, shepherds or angels. But from this point forward in Luke's gospel, Jesus is the one that is going to do all of the interpretation. And his mild rebuke to his parents is an honoring one, of course, but he's saying, why were you even looking? Did you not know that I would be in my father's house? And I wonder if you might even be in here this morning searching for the Savior, searching for the Redeemer, and where are you thinking you will find him? Have you ever realized that so often in our life in Christ we search for the Savior in places where he hasn't promised to be? You know, if we're thinking about just the ordinary struggle against sin within our own lives, even as we, we search for Christ, we often end up searching for idols, searching for sources of salvation in something like power in the world, the pleasure of a particular relationship, the possession of a particular thing, or even maybe in our own kind of evangelical subculture, we might search for Christ in the latest best-selling book on the Amazon charts or the next retreat that will come along to stir within us newfound desire for the Lord, or the, the summer camp that's going to get us all eager for Christ. And all those things might be okay, but let us not forget where God has promised to meet us, where Christ has promised to dwell with us through his word and his spirit. Might he even be speaking to you this morning, say, why are you looking for me there when I have promised to be with you? the gathered worship of my people. Why are you looking for me there? I promise to come to you in the preaching of my word. Why are you looking for me there? I promise to be with you in the Lord's Supper. 
So kids, you need to always remember that God has spoken to us in such wonderful ways. That he is kind to us, even as the shorter catechism says, what does God require of us? That we might believe in Jesus Christ. He requires of us faith in Jesus, repentance unto life, and diligent use of all the outward means whereby he communicates to us the benefits of our redemption. Which is a long-winded way of saying, Jesus promises to be with us, to come near to us, to grow us into him through the ordinary means of grace. The reading and preaching of his word, prayer, sacraments of baptism in the Lord's Supper. Are you searching for the Savior this morning? I pray that you would find him in his house and in his word and by his spirit. So look what happens at the end again of verse 49. He says, I must be. It is fascinating language he uses. I must be in my father's house. Remember, he's holding court with these experts in the law at this time. They surely would have known that no one in the Old Testament, not even Moses who built the tabernacle, not King David who desired to build the temple, not his son Solomon who built the temple, no prophet, no priest, no king in the Old Testament ever referred to the place of God's presence as my father's house. And here is this 12-year-old boy saying, I am in my father's house, signaling to them and even to us that this 12-year-old boy knows something that no one else does at this time. And clearly his parents know nothing about what he's talking about because notice verse 50. And they did not understand the saying that he had spoken to them. And if you've studied this passage before, maybe you've heard a sermon before, I've heard many over the course of this week as I prepare for this sermon, but also in the course of my life in Christ. And almost without fail, I've heard a preacher rebuke Mary and Joseph at this point because surely they should have known what Jesus was on about. Gabriel appeared to Joseph and Mary individually, reminding them that their son, or even proclaiming to them that their son to be born was going to be the Messiah. How could they have missed what Jesus was actually going to be doing? Well, I frankly can sympathize with Mary and Joseph. How many of you know that one extraordinary event 12 years ago, followed by 12 years of ordinary, maybe even mundane life in Christ, tends to make that extraordinary event seem not altogether that extraordinary? And Mary and Joseph even remind us, don't they, that it's, it's difficult even for those people who are nearest to Christ to understand the truths about who Jesus is. It even reminds us, doesn't it, that proximity to Jesus doesn't mean faith in Christ is automatic, doesn't mean understanding Jesus is guaranteed. And kids, you need to remember this. You're in here this morning because your parents are godly parents. They're bringing you into the house of the Lord. They're bringing you to God's songs, God's prayers, God's word. But none of it is automatic to bring faith. You have to wrestle with and reckon with the truths of Jesus Christ yourself, praying for the Spirit's help that you might truly understand who Jesus is. And like Mary, notice verse 51 at the end, treasure up all these things in your heart. I wonder what you even tend to do when you come across a passage in Scripture that is difficult to understand, truths about Jesus that are hard to reconcile with the way our mind tends to work in the 21st century. 
calls of Christ that are difficult to heed in our own sinful nature. Well, what do you do when a hard saying of Jesus comes? Well, maybe Mary is a model for us to follow here. Pondering the truth, contemplating the claims of Christ, treasuring them up in our hearts and meditating on them that by God's help through His Spirit, we might truly understand who Jesus is. You'll see even what happens following this encounter in verse 51. Luke tells us that Jesus went down with his parents and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Luke is accenting for us. You need to see this. The ongoing obedience of Jesus Christ to his parents. Not only in verse 59, I'm sorry, verse 49, do we find that Jesus is obedient to his heavenly father. Verse 51 tells us he's continually obedient submissive to his earthly father, to his parents, that he continually keeps the fifth commandment that we read together earlier this morning. He honors and obeys his father and mother. That honor and obedience is so necessary, as we will soon see for our very salvation. From his earliest days, he is God's obedient son, keeping all of God's law for God's people. And if you've been with us in our previous studies of Luke's gospel, maybe you have noted that we've often heard what other people think about Jesus. Last week, Simeon takes up the baby Jesus in his arms and declares that he has now set his eyes upon God's salvation. Well, in verse 52, we finally see for the first time, and we're told what God the Father thinks about his son. Notice the postscript in verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Uh, You can also translate verse 52 saying that Jesus increased in grace with God. God's favor and grace was upon Jesus Christ as he was growing. It's even a verse that's meant to accent Jesus' humanity. He was an ordinary 12-year-old boy who grows into wisdom who grows in stature, not just with God, but also with men, which is signaling to us something that we're going to see later on in the gospel, that Jesus came, of course, as God's son, but he came as God's obedient son to save mankind. I'm sure many of you probably haven't heard of the name Archibald G. Brown before, but he was one of the most famous preachers in London in the late 19th and earliest early 20th century. He was a good friend of uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, even succeeded him for a period of time at the Metropolitan Metropolitan Tabernacle. And he was said that, it was said that AGB, as he was popularly known, AGB belonged to a school of preaching marked by blood, love, and power. Such was his eloquence from behind the pulpit. And the story is told that one day he was seated in his home with one of his close friends, and his close friends was talking about the fact that the kind of sermons that he enjoyed most, that he found most helpful, were simple sermons. And so AGB responded, well, what do you mean by a simple sermon? And his friend paused for a second and thought to himself, how might he define simplicity in preaching? Then he said, a simple sermon is one that is just all about the Lord Jesus. And has it struck you that this particular text in Luke is overwhelmingly all about the Lord Jesus Christ. There isn't a command here for us to obey. 
There isn't a promise here for us to receive. There isn't a rebuke here for us to heed. There is declaration, there is truth about who Jesus is that we are meant to ponder like Mary, even treasure within our hearts. John Owen once said that the principle of faith, the main duty of faith, is contemplating the glory of Christ. I think that's what Luke means for us to do here today. This is the only recorded story of Jesus' childhood in all of Scripture. It is all about his being lost and then being found by his parents. But even within verse 49, we find very significant truth that I think we want to meditate on as we even begin to close out our study. Truth that is worthy of our contemplation truth that is worthy of our meditation as we want to see the glory of Christ even when he is a 12-year-old boy. So a couple things to notice as we begin to close down our time, the first of which is we want to learn about Jesus' interest in God's word. He has amazed the seminary professors of his time with his awareness of scripture. And we should ask, how does a 12-year-old become that aware of God's word that he astonishes the religious teachers of the day? Now remember, we confess, our Orthodox Christology says that Jesus is one person in two distinct natures. He's truly God and truly human. But sometimes we can make the mistake of confusing the two natures, which is actually an age-old heresy and say, Jesus knew all of these things about God's word because he was God. He knew all of it. But to do so would be to confuse his divine nature into his human nature. Jesus was a man, Hebrews says, just like us, which means he grew into the truth of God's word as a human being always does. He knew more about God's word as a 12-year-old than he did as a 6-year-old. He knew more about God's word as a 30-year-old than he did as a 20-year-old. And how did he do that? That's why we even read from Isaiah chapter 50 earlier this morning. A text in the prophecy of the suffering servant to come says that God was going to wake him up. Imagine this imagery. Maybe you've never thought about it before. God was going to wake up his servant every day to lead him into truth he might be able to speak a word to the weary. Every day the Spirit was waking up Jesus Christ, exciting within him an interest to study God's word so that he might know it more deeply. Why did he have such an ability in Scripture? Well, of course, in part, he was a sinless human being, so he had not the blinding and deceptive reality of sin that so often pushes away truth from our minds, but also he had an unusually heightened interest in God's word which is so necessary for us to see, because just Lord willing, in a few weeks' time, we're going to turn to Luke chapter 4. At the beginning, we're going to see Jesus thrown out into the wilderness to do battle with the the serpent Satan, and what is the only weapon that he takes with him? The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and it's his ability with that weapon that becomes our very own salvation. Luke wants us to see the unusual interest Jesus had in God's word. He also wants us to see, secondly, his identity as God's son. Because notice the play on words that's going on in verse 48 and 49. You see Mary in her rebuke at the end of verse 48 says, Behold, your father and I have been searching for you. Jesus' response in verse 49 says, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know I would be in my father's house? 
So from the earliest age, Jesus had a conscious identity, a self-awareness. He was convinced that he was God's one and only son. Which is significant if you understand that over the past few decades, or really even past couple centuries, progressive and liberal scholars have always wanted to debate about when it was that Jesus became aware of the fact that he was the Messiah and God's one and only son. And they often talk about his public ministry as this exercise in self-discovery of Jesus uncovering who he really is, when in reality, Luke is telling us that from even his boyhood, he knew he was son of the heavenly Father. So Luke wants us to see his interest in God's word, his identity as God's son, and thirdly, his intentionality for God's work. Because again, look at the end of verse 49. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Do you see that obedience, that intentionality? I must be here, is what Jesus says to his parents. And the Greek in verse 49 is notoriously ambiguous. So that's why, depending on your translation, it may read something different than what we have here in the ESV. Uh, The direct object doesn't have a noun, which all that means is you can translate verse 49 to say, I must be in my father's house. Or you could also translate it as other translations would say, it must be about my father's business. I'm increasingly convinced Luke was intentionally ambiguous and vague in his selection of the words, because is it not true? Where else would Jesus be? than in his father's house. And what else would Jesus be doing than his father's work? I must be doing this, 12-year-old Jesus says to his parents. I must be in my father's house about my father's business. And this word must is even one that shows up throughout throughout Luke's gospel to remind us of Jesus' mission. And lest we forget the significance and the details of that mission, uh, join me on a quick two-stop tour of Luke's gospel to see these other musts that he brings out about Jesus' mission. If you want to turn over to chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, verse 43. This is the next time this word must shows up in Luke's gospel. In context, he's preaching in the synagogues, and he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. I must preach, I must teach. No wonder he's as a 12-year-old in the temple teaching, holding court over matters of God's law. Now flip ahead to Luke chapter nine, verse 22. Another must in Luke's gospel that's echoed in Luke chapter 22 and Luke chapter 24. He says to his disciples, Luke chapter nine, verse 22, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and raised on the third day. This is what Jesus must be doing. The Father's business, preaching the kingdom of God, saving sinners like you and me by going to the cross, suffering the brutal affliction of crucifixion, being buried in the tomb, and rising again three days later for his justification, for our salvation, he received that great resurrection announcement. So maybe, even though this text doesn't say anything directly to us by way of promise, rebuke, or command, it actually does say a lot about us, doesn't it? 
that by faith in Jesus Christ we're united to the living Son of God and whom we are to imitate. Maybe it's a call for us even to examine our own heart's interest in God's word, to revisit the wonders of our identity of God's, as God's children, our intentionality on God's mission. But don't miss something else that is so easily overlooked in this small little story tucked away at the beginning of Luke's gospel. As best I can tell and calculate, 21 years later, to the week and to the day, Jesus again goes missing for three days. It's at the end of Passover week that he's crucified. He's placed in a tomb, a a stone rolled in front. Three days later, he rises from the dead. And his family finds him. And the world finds salvation. So might you not be like Mary and Joseph in here this morning? Searching for the Savior. I wonder if you have found him. And it's his tender mercy to even call out to you now. Because this Savior loves to be found. He wants you to know that he was the obedient son of God. From the earliest of his days. That he fulfilled God's law. That he was the righteous one of God. Even as Romans chapter 5 says, the obedient The obedience of one brought righteousness to many. That if you would but turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ, this obedient Savior's righteousness becomes your own. That's why I pray that if you are in here this morning and haven't yet found Christ Jesus, that you would but find him this morning by turning from your sin and trusting in him. And if you have found him, might you have reason to praise him afresh to contemplate his glories anew. Because from his earliest days, he was God's obedient son. Let us pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your mercy unto us. That you sent your son Jesus Christ to come and save those of us who are sinners, that while we were yet sinners, he came and died for us. Lord, we do pray that you would take this simple and short story and let us see all of the wonders and the glories of Jesus Christ it gives to us. Do help us to grow in him, to meet with him this week. Let those who are lost and searching for him find him today through the preaching of your word, we pray. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.